Wood McKenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back, taking place at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco on June 21st and 22nd. Join expert solar and storage analysts for discussions with leading grid-scale utilities, solar and energy storage developers, and federal policymakers. How is the IRA catapulting the development of solar and storage in North America? How can we continue to build a productive environment for solar and energy storage as we move forward with the energy transition? Expect two days of panel discussions, presentations, and workshops as we explore the opportunities for solar and storage in the coming decades. If you're interested in sponsoring or attending, find out more at woodmac.com events. You know, I think we need to be very serious about ensuring the security of our nuclear fuel cycle. There's a lot of attention on it right now. In the DOE, this is something we're taking very seriously, and we'd like to make sure that we can support the advanced reactor industry as well as the existing reactor fleet with their uranium needs in the context of a less dependence on Russia. This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Bam Miller. Nuclear power is gaining momentum around the world. Concerns around energy security and the looming threat of a banking crisis has led to a shift in global policy. By 2050, at least 10% of today's nuclear fleet will retire. We can't reach net zero without nuclear playing a part, so we need to look to innovate new technology to replace existing plants. Nuclear capacity is declining due to safety concerns and higher costs versus other renewables. In the U.S., nuclear delivers less than 20% of the total electricity output. As ever, cost efficiencies drive adoption. The levelized cost of electricity for conventional nuclear is over three times the cost of wind and solar per megawatt hour. New advanced reactor technologies are needed to lower costs. Small module reactors are one of these. As global innovation in nuclear evolves, these reactors could deliver energy at less than $80 a megawatt hour. Investment in SMRs is focused on the U.S., Canada, and Europe. You know, in DOE, we see that there's an incredibly important role for nuclear power, especially advanced nuclear power deployment, to play in the climate mitigation that we have to do by 2050 to get to a net zero economy. It could be as much as 300 gigawatts of clean, firm nuclear power that might be required by 2050. And since we only have 90-something gigawatts on the grid right now, it's going to require at least 100 or 200 gigawatts of new nuclear power to be deployed on this grid. Scaling this industry is going to require significant private investment, public-private partnerships, and a lot of attention on breaking the commercial stalemate between potential customers and the investments that need to be made in the nuclear industrial base for deployment. That's Dr. Katie Huff. She leads the Office of Nuclear Energy at the U.S. Department of Energy as the Assistant Secretary. The DOE estimates that new laws, led by the IRA, could reduce carbon emissions by 1 million metric tons in 2030. Nuclear will play a key role in this. TerraPower is a company helping to drive innovations in nuclear power. They have plans to build a first-of-its-kind reactor near Kemmerer, Wyoming. 90% of the state's electricity generation comes from fossil fuels. The Natrium Nuclear Plant from TerraPower will replace an existing coal plant, benefiting from $2 billion in funding from the DOE. Jeff Navin is Director of External Affairs at TerraPower. 
So the Natrium technology is a carbon-free, firm, flexible energy source that seamlessly integrates into power grids with high penetrations of variable renewables. It combines a 345-megawatt fast reactor with a molten salt energy storage system, and the storage technology can boost the system's output up to 500 megawatts of power for more than five and a half hours when needed. We're currently building the first Natrium plant near a retiring coal plant just outside of Kemmerer, Wyoming, in partnership with the U.S. Department of Energy as part of the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program. Shifts in attitude to nuclear and policymaking are driving innovation. As coal plants close, nuclear will be key to helping us transition to carbon-free energy. Maria Korsnick is president and CEO at the Nuclear Energy Institute. This is really a wonderful time for nuclear, and why is that? Many utilities have made commitments as they look ahead for the next decade or two on how they're going to reduce those carbon emissions. And right now, the tools in the toolbox are largely intermittent resources. So there's really a good role for around-the-clock service that's also carbon-free. And there is nuclear. Carbon-free nuclear, 724, we have a wonderful history of resilience and reliability. Now, when they get a little bit smaller, they can be fit into a variety of locations in different parts of the grid and be wonderful partners to the intermittent renewables. That partnership is really what we're looking for, for that affordable, reliable, carbon-free grid of the future. A nuclear renaissance, it's certainly possible, but we need to see an improved track record of delivery for the nuclear industry overall. That's David Brown, who's director of Wood Mackenzie's Energy Transition Service. You know, one of the key enablers for nuclear over the last few years has been policy support. And I think what everyone needs to watch in terms of policy support is that policy has to reward nuclear for what it provides. And that's stability of power supply and low carbon energy. On the interchange today, Dr. Katie Huff, David Brown, Jeff Navin, and Maria Korsnick join me to explore how the next generation of nuclear reactors will power the energy transition. So I wanted to get everybody's opinion on really what's driving the resurgence in nuclear energy, the investment, the attitude. So Katie, why don't I start with you? Yeah, I think it's, you know, a combination of things, but primarily I think there's a very existential crisis unfolding in the context of climate change that has drawn attention to the need for clean energy of all kinds. And in particular, as we look at the variable renewable sources entering the grid, there's a complementary need for clean, firm power that can be provided by nuclear. And as you contemplate this unfolding calamity, of course, there's a secondary unfolding calamity that we're watching in Europe with regard to energy security that has really focused folks' attention on the importance of resilient trustworthy large-scale power um, and its ability to be weaponized by other nations. When you combine the need for energy security and energy reliability and resilience with our need to transition to a clean electric grid and a net zero economy, nuclear is right there at the nexus. And I think it's getting a lot of bipartisan support for this reason and a lot of interest from the smart people that want to solve these problems across the planet. Jeff, how about you? Yeah, I think Katie's absolutely right. Uh, I served at the Department of Energy during the Obama administration a decade ago. And, you know, nuclear was really important to those goals of trying to reduce carbon emissions by, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent. Although we're looking at those being the goal. But when you talk about getting to net zero in the electricity sector, it's absolutely essential. Um, nuclear has a lot of the attributes that are going to be 
necessary to help pair with wind and solar and geothermal and energy storage systems, all the things we're going to need you know, to get there. It's not a surprise. It's not a, you know, this is not a secret that a lot of opposition in the past to nuclear has been from the left and from some environmentalists in the environmental community. But as we sort of shifted what some of those concerns are, climate change is not just the biggest topic, but it's order of magnitude bigger than all of the other environmental issues we face. You know, a lot of people have changed their minds about nuclear. And we hope that some of the new technologies we can bring can make folks even more comfortable with the technology because we're absolutely going to need it if we're going to get to net zero in time to stop the worst effects of climate change. Maria? Well, I agree with both. I guess I would just add, Katie really teed it up, as much as the climate conversation is uh, so important, you know, energy security has really eclipsed climate security in many of the conversations. And uh, most notably in, in Europe, as she mentioned, with the unfortunate war that's playing out in Ukraine. And so, you know, you take energy security and national security, you add to that climate security, and you come back to nuclear, right? It offers all of that. And study after study has also shown that when you add the nuclear round-the-clock carbon-free energy to the mix, that it actually lowers uh, the system cost. So now you throw in affordability. And given that electricity really permeates the economy in terms of you know doing this affordably, I think is a key element to it. So you need that high reliability, you need that resiliency, but you also need to do it in an affordable way. And I think, you know, nuclear, again, is something that's a key ingredient in this solution. You know, when we, I think, look at the history of nuclear power, it's obviously been challenged over the last 10 to 15 years. But we're seeing several shifts in, in energy markets around the world. One is the need for reliable, stable electricity supply. The other is the need for electricity to unlock new sources of energy supply, like low-carbon hydrogen. And then the other is energy security, particularly in markets in Asia and, and Eastern Europe. And nuclear really ticks all of those boxes in terms of a supply option that can support energy markets around the world. Uh, in terms of how fast nuclear can grow, you know, I don't think anyone can say that a nuclear renaissance is impossible. The world has a track record of major technological innovations, you know, during times of stress in the energy system, you know, and that's what we've seen over the last 18 months. Uh, and there's been a significant amount of policy support and private investment to, to scale nuclear over time. I think what we need to see, you know, is, is, is a track record of delivery for advanced nuclear, in particular SMRs, uh, in order for nuclear to meet the potential that everyone realizes. I'm personally a big fan of nuclear, right? I think as we've driven towards decarbonization, the focus has been on wind and solar. And I think it's nuclear hasn't been talked about as much, uh, obviously because of security concerns, the nimbyism associated with it, all those things. But as you continue down the path of energy transition, it just seems like a required complement to the other sources of energy. How has policy shifted to help drive this resurgence in interest, uh, not only in the U.S., but in, how does that compare to the rest of the world? And Maria, I guess I'll start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, uh, Katie mentioned it, that we have bipartisan support for nuclear. And you get it perhaps for different reasons. But at the end of the day, both the Republicans and the Democrats absolutely see a need for nuclear power, the current fleet that we have, as well as uh, the future fleet. And you see that also in their fingerprints on legislation, right? 
the bipartisan infrastructure package that was passed had really excellent elements in there for nuclear. It had the part about keeping the current fleet, the civil nuclear credit program. It also had a nod to uh, some tax credits for hydrogen relative to hydrogen that would be created from nuclear power. And it also funded the advanced reactor demonstration uh, projects, which is what Jeff's team is working on, one, one of those projects. And then fast forward, you also had the Inflation Reduction Act, and there was uh, tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act that were wonderful. But interestingly enough, right, those tax credits were technology neutral. So it didn't say a nuclear tax credit. It said anybody that can bring that carbon-free power. And we liked that because we want nuclear to be seen as that carbon-free solution. And so having that technology-neutral tax credit, we're hoping, sort of brings nuclear into the fold as people think about their carbon-free options. Yeah, and David, you know, I think you touched on a lot of the issues that, that I think nuclear can solve, and we're seeing that play out in real time in Wyoming right now. So, you know, Wyoming, huge energy production state, highest energy IQ probably anywhere in the country. They know how electricity is produced. They know where their energy comes from, you know, uh, provided coal power for many, many decades and have seen a huge growth of wind energy in that part of the country. You know, they export something like 13 or 15 times more electricity than they consume. And most of that power goes west and it goes to places like Washington, Oregon, Northern California, where these clean energy standards have really driven demand for clean sources of energy. Hence the growth of wind you know, in that state. We are building our plant just down the road from a coal plant that's slated to be retired in a little town called Kemmerer. Kemmerer has about 2,700 people in it uh, as its population. When that coal plant was announced that it was going to shut down, uh, there's a coal mine next to that plant. Those are the two of the biggest employers in that region. And it was pretty catastrophic for that community. Uh, so we're going to show up and we're going to build our plant there. We'll have about 1,500 uh, workers working to build and construct the plant. Plant's life is 60 years. It can be extended for another 20 to go up to 80 years. There are currently about 110 IBEW workers at that coal plant. Pacific Corp, our partner, has said that each one of those union IBEW members are going to have a job at our plant. So what does it mean for that community? It means that they're going to have stable employment in that town for many, many decades to come. And we talk a lot about just transition. We talk a lot about providing these jobs. Nuclear is actually the highest paying subsector in the energy sector. These are really, really good jobs. And, uh, you know, we like to say if you've all been comfortable with a coal plant as your neighbor, you're going to love having a nuclear plant as your neighbor. It's quiet. There's no emissions. It's clean. And uh, we found the exact opposite of nimbyism. We've been fully and warmly embraced by that community. We have a lot on our shoulders to make sure that we are a good neighbor, which we fully intend to be. But I think you're going to see more and more communities reaching out, wanting these plants in their backyard, particularly as we go through this energy transition. You know, one of the key enablers for nuclear over the last few years has been policy support. And I think what everyone needs to watch in terms of policy support is that policy has to reward nuclear for what it provides. And that's stability of power supply and low carbon energy. Policy until recently actually hasn't rewarded nuclear for its value proposition in the power market. That's starting to change. And I think that's a key determinant of why you're seeing so much run room for advanced nuclear in the United States and in Canada. So Katie, as the energy transition has gained momentum, a lot of it has been put on technological advancements. So we've seen a lot with wind, solar, uh, storage, particularly compressing within a lot of advancements over the last five years compared to maybe the last 25 years. So with nuclear becoming a more noticeable piece 
of the energy transition, what technological advancements have you seen that are helping to drive more adoption and also decrease the costs associated with it? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the key sort of game changing innovations is the modularity of construction that's envisioned for these smaller plants. Rather than stick building every component in a boutique way on site, a lot of small modular and advanced reactor companies are envisioning a more modular construction approach where you sort of develop those advanced reactor components and pieces and, you know, heat exchanger components all on skids that you then put together on site rather than stick building everything in a custom way. And we expect that to be not only cheaper, but faster, which is really at the forefront of what the biggest challenges are in building new nuclear is going over schedule and over budget is a habit that we must break. And I think in addition to all of that, there are more passive safety systems that rely on things like natural circulation rather than active pumps and really focus on the avoidance of human intervention in the event of any kind of off-normal reactor behavior. We get this from a lot of different features, and I think Jeff can kind of talk a bit about what it looks like in the Natrium reactor, which is a real, you know, I think, leader in this context. But we have a variety of reactor designs that incorporate this, even the Vogel plant that's a sort of advanced gigawatt scale reactor in the Gen 3 space that has already incorporated some of those passive safety systems. And the difference means, you know, you have 72 hours before a human needs to intervene in an off-normal, like, significant loss of offsite power event at that plant, which is a game changer for just trust and confidence. Yeah. You know, TerraPower was founded by Bill Gates about 15 years ago. And uh, as you might imagine, with our chairman, Dean Bell, innovation is really at the core of who we are and what we do. And what, what our company was founded to do was find innovative ways to make nuclear power more cost competitive uh, by making it inherently safer and also designing reactors that are really built for a 21st century grid. You know, there are about 100 reactors operating in the United States right now. They have served us really, really well, you know, but they were designed at a different time when we had different energy needs and the grid was trying to meet very, very different needs. So, you know, the natrium system system really differs from those large water-cooled reactors kind of in three key ways. The first is the coolant that we use. Maria and Katie both know better than I do. If you're operating a reactor, the one thing you're trying to do is to make sure that you've got coolant over your core to remove that heat. You know, nuclear is just a really fancy way to make steam in a lot of cases, right, uh, to generate electricity. And water is what we use in, in the current operating fleet. Water works really, really well, but the boiling point of water, it's 100 degrees C, so oftentimes you pressurize it, and always you have to make sure you're pumping cool water over the core and removing that. And you want to make sure that that happens in the event of an accident or an incident, so you've got lots of belts and suspenders and safety systems. The natrium reactor uses sodium as our core. Sodium is an is element, it's a metal. Its boiling point is uh, 883 degrees Celsius, so it literally can't boil off, right? Our core cannot get hot enough to boil off that sodium. So that means it sits in a pool. If you look at a cross-section of our reactor versus a light water reactor, ours looks pretty boring. It's pretty simple. Um, But that simplicity, which is enabled because of the inherent safety of that coolant, makes it a lot cheaper to build. So we have fewer pumps, fewer components. We actually don't need external electricity Um, In the event of an incident, our reactor will shut down safely without human intervention, and it doesn't need um, all of those backup safety systems. The second piece is the size. Most of the plants operating in the United States are a gigawatt or or more in their size. Uh, Ours is 345 megawatts, so about a third or a fourth of the size of a conventional reactor. We can go bigger, but we just think that given a need to replace coal-fired and other thermal generation, it's a nice bite size for a utility to be a finance and purchase. Uh, again, utility business models have changed since the last big construction pieces were made, so we've adapted our reactor to fit into those economic realities. 
And the third piece that makes ours different is that instead of using the heat directly to make steam, we use the heat to run a very large molten salt energy storage system. This is off-the-shelf technology that's been used in concentrated solar now for many, many years around the world. Turns out that the output temperature of our reactor is the perfect temperature for solar thermal salts. And so we heat up a hot tank of molten salt and we store that energy and it allows us to store up to 500 megawatts of electricity for up to five and a half hours. So it's really designed to integrate well into grids with high penetrations of wind and solar. In fact, we view it as an enabling technology to get us to 100% clean in a 21st century grid that has lots of that variable sources of energy on it. So again, we are bringing new ways of thinking, new technologies, but really most importantly, we're thinking about what the market needs and designing a nuclear product that is consistent with where we see the 21st century grid heading. I think that's a great point that he brought up. The fact that we call them small modular reactors, you know, often I, I wish we would have called them simple modular reactors instead of just small. Yes, they got smaller, but as uh, what Katie shared, you know, really what's helpful as we move forward is their simplicity. So in the fact that they got smaller and these passive systems are more heavily relied upon, it really allows you to not have numerous sort of other things that some of the large plants have. And it's really that simplicity, honestly, that uh, we're looking forward to, to meet that sort of cost and schedule and get a better reputation about meeting cost and schedule. As Katie mentioned, that's something that we need to demonstrate and prove. And I think gain confidence, especially in, in the financial community. But as we look ahead to that grid of the future, we're talking a lot about electricity today. But, you know, we don't exactly know what all of our energy needs of the future are going to be. Some people think the hydrogen economy is, you know, on its way and it's going to be here to stay. Others, if you think about decarbonizing, we don't just need to decarbonize electricity. We need to decarbonize the entire economy. And one of those things is manufacturing. And some would argue that decarbonizing the manufacturing sector is even harder than decarbonizing the electric sector. And some of the folks that run these really significant manufacturing businesses, they need energy. That energy might be in the form of hydrogen, but it might also be in the form of high temperature steam. And what's beautiful about these reactors that we're talking about is you don't have to choose. You could get electricity if that's what you want. You could get hydrogen if that's what you want. You could get high temperature steam if that's what you want. And you can get a mixture of all of those. And so I think what's really nice as we look ahead when we're not exactly sure all that the economy is going to need and all of the things that are going to drive us uh, to this carbon-free future, it's really nice to have this scalable from a few megawatts all the way up to a gigawatt size and lots of sizes in between and this variable output. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program, there were two reactors that were given awards under that program. Natrium is one of those, right? And so we're building this firm, flexible energy system that's designed to integrate into grids with high penetration of renewables. Second, X-Energy has a high temperature gas reactor, and they're actually deploying theirs in conjunction with Dow Chemical at one of their facilities uh, on the Gulf Coast, right? So when you think about two of the trickiest parts of this sort of net zero economy decarbonization challenge that we have, one is getting that last piece of the electricity grid decarbonized, which is what TerraPower is working on. And then the second piece is what, what X Energy is working on is really providing that carbon-free high temperature heat that can be used in the manufacturing process as well. So again, what's interesting about both of these designs is they build on decades of research that the Department of Energy and its predecessor agencies have been doing for many, many, many years, but they're taking those technologies and they're applying to some of these really hard to decarbonize challenges that we're going to need to get to a minute. 
Yeah, one of my questions was going to be, you know, the size of these projects. Particularly, you hear small modular reactor, and my question, okay, well, how small, right? Because my dated view is I think about these huge concrete complexes uh, for nuclear energy, but with the technological advancements of shrinking the size and being more efficient, then I think that helps with the nimbyism, people getting a little bit more comfortable with everything. But I was definitely kind of curious as to how that size impacts interest going forward. Yeah, I would say you'll probably not see the kind of big cooling towers that you associate with big coal plants and nuclear plants that are at the gigawatt scale, though not all nuclear plants have cooling towers. And actually, most cooling towers in the United States are not associated with nuclear power plants. Um, I will say, you know, that kind of large scale, you know, power removal is usually because there's just so much power. A lot of these designs, not all of them, but a lot of these designs use sort of um, drier heat exchange systems and ultimate heat sink that won't require so much water, which is also good for our water conservation and sustainability, but also reduces the amount of sort of visual size that you would experience as you look at this facility, which looks much more like a building or a small warehouse in most cases. Uh, some of them very fancy looking, some not so much. But the vision, of course, is that it would not be quite such a significant thing and that it would fit nicely in the grid, sort of as Jeff was saying, where those 200, 300, 400 megawatt coal assets used to be. You know, a lot of these reactors are designed, as Jeff was describing, to fit where the grid expects those few hundred megawatt assets rather than gigawatt assets or 10 megawatt assets, which you might find in the more renewable space. Something that really is a one-to-one replacement of that coal size is really in this sort of sweet spot here for these smaller modular reactors. Though I will note, a lot of interest in microreactors, too, where you would historically have seen diesel generators, either for direct power or for backup power. I think, you know, that looks more like a standard ISO container, like the kind you see on the back of an 18-wheeler. Those kinds of sizes are more on the microreactor, sort of 1 to 10, 15, 20 megawatt size. Yeah, and I think that's what's beautiful is that there's like a whole range now. As you mentioned, nuclear used to just be that big thousand megawatt or gigawatt, you know, size thing. And these small modular reactors will be roughly maybe a third of that size. So think maybe 300 megawatts. And then as uh, Katie said, goes all the way down to, you know, a megawatt. And uh, once you get less than about 20 megawatts, we call those micro reactors. But still, we all of a sudden now have tools in the toolbox really for any application. And, And Katie touched on this, but part of the reason that choosing the size, right, is that one, we expect the nature reactor to be in the range of about a billion dollars at the kind cost, which, you know, a billion dollars is a lot of money. But if you're a utility executive, a billion dollars for a 60-year generation asset is not something that's uh, hard to get your, your mind around, right? And secondly, being able to site near a thermal plant, a coal plant that's being retired, you know, it's not just a nice thing to do for the community. It's certainly really important. But from a nuclear developer's point of view, we get three really important things. One, most importantly, we get a workforce. We've talked about those jobs being transferable. We've got trained workforce in-house already in those sites that we can put to work quickly. Secondly, we have water, right? All of those thermal plants use water to create steam. And uh, we already have the water rights or utility partners will have the water rights to be able to use that water, which, you know, in the West where we're seeing a lot of growth is a really important thing. And the third piece is transmission, right? We know we're going to have to build lots and lots and lots of transmission as part of this energy transition, but to already have that transmission infrastructure in place um, is a really, really important part of being able to quickly. So, you know, there's nothing technologically that would prevent us from building any of these reactors at a larger scale. 
But again, just given where the market is and given what the grid's needs are, uh, we think that a sort of few hundred megawatts is probably the right size. So Maria, as nuclear becomes more evident as a key piece of the energy transition and a nice complement to the other technologies out there, how important is it to preserve and upgrade the existing fleet that we have? Well, I think it's key. I'll be honest. So those plants originally designed with 40 years imagined, but there was never really anything magic about 40 years. It was just intended that that's how long the initial license would be for. We have essentially, with the exception of one or two plants, extended those licenses from 40 years to 60 years here in the United States. That's, that's already happened. And now we're looking at going from 60 years to 80 years. And I'll be honest, there's nothing magic about 80 years uh, either. We're just doing it in 20-year chunks where we're ensuring that the correct aging management programs are in place and things are appropriately monitored throughout the lifetime of each of these assets. And the value of these carbon-free generation workforces is absolutely amazing. The challenge we have if we begin shutting down the current fleet, then we have to build just to make back up, if you will, the hole that we've created by shutting down that asset. So the best thing that we can do is to keep the current fleet safely operating, extend them from 60 to 80 years, and in the meantime, build additional assets so that we're actually contributing and, if you will, taking a step forward. So honestly, the current fleet that we have often I think of as kind of the unsung hero. It's been sort of quietly producing this carbon-free, highly reliable energy for many, many years. And um, now it's just time to give it some due recognition and ensure that it continues to safely operate while we innovate. And, you know, one other point I think Maria touched on this is nuclear plants operate at a very high capacity factor, which is the percentage of time that they're actually producing electricity. I think the average is north of 90% now for the fleet. So if you lose a gigawatt of nuclear power in many parts of the country where the capacity factors of wind or solar might be 30% or so, you'd have to build three gigawatts of wind or three gigawatts of solar just to make up the carbon-free electricity that is lost by losing that one gigawatt nuclear plant. And, you know, we do not need to be digging holes just to refill them. Uh, we are woefully behind in our efforts to decarbonize our electricity system. And we do need to make sure that we're keeping all of the clean ener energy generating assets that we have operational. So I was really happy to see the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, made a very important, and the bipartisan infrastructure bill both made really important investments to make sure that we can keep those plants operating because those are huge holes to fill if we have to go back and start backfilling clean energy that we've lost. And I'll even point out that Jeff is being particularly kind to wind and solar here, which, I mean, of course, are a huge component of our strategy. But, you know, those three gigawatts that you would need for a wind or solar deployment, it also assumes that the sun shines at the same time when people use it, right? And so it does assume a backbone of some other clean firm source that enables this either long duration storage or a clean firm source to make sure that those electrons are available in that moment, right? And so it can, in some estimates of the system's cost, be even more than that three gigawatts because this, not just the capacity factor, but the timing of that capacity being available on the grid. So Katie, you mentioned earlier the need for public-private partnerships from the investment side to help drive this initiative forward. How are you finding the investment climate, particularly from the private side of the spectrum, and what needs to be done to help kind of drive more dollars into the area? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this. You know, I think 
the kind of crown jewels of our public-private partnerships here that are these advanced reactor demonstration program demos, as well as actually the carbon-free power project in which we're also cost-sharing up deployment of the new scale Voyager 6-pack, which is a light water small modular reactor. Um, it's not a 50-50 cost share. It's slightly less government and more private. But those kinds of things can reduce the first-of-a-kind costs and risks for those companies as they sort of get to the place where they can start reducing the costs of what we expect them to have to get to. There are other things that we can do in terms of public-private partnership. Vogel is a great example of the federal government taking on some risk through loan guarantees in the Loan Programs Office. And we think that that incentivizes private investment, not only these cost share programs, but loan programs office and Inflation Reduction Act investment tax credits should do the same thing as you look at advanced reactor investment tax credits for new nuclear. But there's some great examples of private partnerships that have come out of this, right? Um, after uh, many decades of partnership with General Electric and TVA, it certainly is the case that DOE is really proud of GE and TVA, along with OPG in Canada and Synthos Green Energy in Poland, getting together in a private-private-private-private partnership to finalize the design for the GE BWRX 300. And that SMR, its first deployment is not going to be, you know, it, it's currently going to be in Canada. And that's not one of these government cost-shared programs. It is, you know, a private endeavor that's happening in Canada. The United States government has supported, you know, that plant design in other ways in the past, but it's going on its own with private investment from these companies. And that's precisely what we want to see because you know, this is going to be trillions of dollars worth of private investment that needs to lead this deployment. And that's why these commercial. So we recently released a set of reports out of DOE called the liftoff pathways, and they describe the pathways to get to commercial liftoff for some of these climate game changer technologies. You can find them at liftoff.energy.gov. But one of them is advanced nuclear. And in it, it really describes how developing a committed order book after the first of a kind can, you know, help to pool demand across a consortium of utilities and accelerate that financial support, whether it's public or private or a combination of the two. But primarily, it's going to have to be mostly private in the end, um, because we're trying to lift off into fully commercial deployment here. And I think that set of reports, it covers advanced nuclear. There's also two more. There's one on long duration energy storage and one is on hydrogen. And we, you'll probably see more reports coming out of DOE on these kind of game changing climate technologies. And I think it describes how we need to get there from here. You know, David, you raised a really interesting point um, about the competitiveness of nuclear. One of the ways we think about that is looking at uh, advanced nuclear on a levelized cost of electricity basis, comparing that technology to other technologies in the power sector. Um, one important thing to note, though, is that LCOE is just one metric to evaluate competitiveness. Obviously, advanced nuclear is more expensive today than wind or solar. However, when you start to look at other costs associated with the power market, like interconnection costs, for example, the LCOE of wind and solar can increase depending on the market and, and, and market dynamics associated with that investment. So, so if, you, if you think of it that way, thinking about the wider cost picture, the costs for wind and solar actually come up um, and, and, and get closer to advanced nuclear. Um, so it, it's just something to keep in mind for companies thinking about uh, power market investments to think about the full cycle costs uh, of that capacity. The advanced reactor demonstration program is really having that effect. Right. So this was designed 
to help bring down the cost, first of a kind nuclear, just like first of a kind anything, you know, is is expensive, right? When I was at DOE, people were signing PPAs for solar in the in the twenty cents a kilowatt hour, you know, range, right? It needed to do that in order to get these plants built and the manufacturing facilities built and to drive down the learning curves, right? So the ARDP is really having that effect. One of the interesting things about our project is that our utility partner, Rocky Mountain Power Pacific Corp, which is a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway Energy. And Berkshire Hathaway Energy is one of the biggest utilities in the United States, but they don't operate any nuclear. So we are doing this with a utility that currently doesn't have any nuclear in its fleet. And, you know, we're getting close to hopefully we'll be breaking ground this year, starting construction of some of our non-nuclear sites. But even at this stage in our development with our utility partner, we signed an MOU with them last year to look at the potential for five additional natrium plants in their service territory in Wyoming and Utah. They have five more coal plants that are going to be retired. They need to find ways to replace that generation. So we're studying those five sites with them. Last week, Pacific or Rocky Mountain Power released their IRP. And in that IRP, it called for two additional natrium plants in Utah, just down the road from our plant in Wyoming. So we actually see a pathway to what Katie was talking about in that liftoff report about getting an order book of four to five of these plants. And if we can get an order book of four to five of these plants in the same region where we can take the learnings from constructing one plant, drive that crew down the road, and they can uh, you know, build that component, install that component on the next plant, then we really are on that path to being able to, to drive down costs. You know, one of the challenges that we've had with nuclear uh, over the past you know, few decades is we've built so few of these plants that we don't really benefit from the learnings. So one of the things that we're excited about with this particular partnership and doing it with Pacific Corp, Rocky Mountain Power, is we would have the ability to build multiple plants that could you know, provide some assurance to our supply chain, we could benefit from the learnings of, of the manufacturing piece, but also from the construction piece and really drive down those costs and get to that end of a kind. And that's what's really been missing from nuclear for the past number of years is we built big plants, but we build one, we build two, and then we take a pause and we really need to kind of learn from some of the other clean energy technologies of building multiple things over and over to drive those learning curves and, uh, and get cost reductions. Yeah, just to add to that, we are absolutely seeing the demand for this. We pull together the chief nuclear officers uh, as part of what we do at the Nuclear Energy Institute. And a year ago, we asked the chief nuclear officers, so those are people that operate the nuclear plants that we have today, what are they looking forward to between now and 2050? And their response was 100 gigawatts. And that's just the people that operate nuclear plants today. We're talking about doubling the amount of nuclear. And then as Katie mentioned in the liftoff report, they looked at it and said, oh, actually, we could double that and get to 200 additional uh, gigawatts by 2050. And so the hunger, the thirst, the real drive and the need for nuclear, it's absolutely there. We need to translate that demand into the financial sector for them to really understand and appreciate just how sure of a bet this is. I mean, it's absolutely certain. And I say that because it's not just here in the United States, right? This same conversation is happening around the globe. And so Katie mentioned Canada. But just look over the last couple of months, you've heard from France, the United Kingdom, Romania, Poland, Bulgaria, Sweden, Norway, Japan, Ghana. So, I mean, 
there's just a simultaneous appreciation for the need for a carbon-free, highly reliable source. And now that nuclear has that, not just the big size, but the medium and the really small size, all of a sudden nuclear is opening up as an option in places that people didn't really consider it an option before. And so to really understand and translate that to the financial sector and say, oh my gosh, this is such a sure bet. There's so many innovators in the market right now and the pie is very big. So you don't really have to choose. Let's just pick one winner. There's going to be a lot of winners here, a lot of winners. The American innovative spirit is absolutely at play. It's teeming with Katie Hupp's uh, National Labs. They're producing fantastic and interesting ideas, and it's really going to help not only the U.S., but it's going to help the U.S. help our allies around the world to get that highly reliable decarbonized energy. Katie, how is the DOE approaching security around nuclear development? I'm not necessarily talking about energy security, but more cybersecurity, things like that to help make sure that nothing is you know, goes wrong as these things come online? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, we have in our light water reactor sustainability program, a continuing effort on cybersecurity and physical security postures at existing plants to reduce the operations and maintenance costs at those existing light water reactor plants. And a lot of the lessons learned from that program are and have already been bleeding into our advanced reactor development programs in the space of HTGRs, high temperature gas reactors and sodium cooled fast reactors and all the kinds of micro reactors and other small modular reactors we're looking towards development on. Another component is that the Office of Nuclear Energy actually works pretty nicely with the NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Administration, on embedding some safeguards and security by design resources into our national laboratory engagements with a lot of these companies. And I think we're seeing a lot of companies really take that on in seriousness as they conduct safeguards, safety and security by design, also known as 3S by design. These kinds of approaches are requirements by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission gets to decide whether or not your site is secure and safe, right? International deployments require safeguards as well. And, you know, I think all the companies that are looking at both deployment here in the U.S. and deployment elsewhere recognize the importance of making sure they meet those requirements. But in DOE, of course, we're trying to make sure that they not only meet, but can go above and beyond as by embedding those concerns into the process of design um, so that it's easiest on those companies as they deploy rather than a patch at the end. And I think as in my former life as a professor, this is a component in the undergraduate education of all nuclear engineers, the sort of 3S by design concept. And so I'm reassured to know that certainly all the design engineers that have come out of university in the last little while are perfectly aware of this kind of concept. But DOE has been able to incorporate dollars on the sort of lab side, both from NE and NNSA. And I think you'll see more and more of that as some of these designs mature. And I think one of the themes that you see throughout the advanced reactor designs, you know, is that by making choices and making design choices that make these reactors inherently safe, you're decreasing cost. But that increased safety has really profound effects sort of across the plant, right? So like we talked about the natrium plant, really can't overheat and boil off the coolant that we have you know, in the reactor. We don't need external power. So there's a vulnerability that's eliminated in that reactor itself. The size is much smaller than some of the other plants that are operating around the world. Our reactor is actually below grade, right? It's gonna, it's underground because it's small enough that you can dig a hole and put it below grade. So there's sort of safety in that piece as well. So, you know, look, we've seen reactors tested by external events around the world and the existing light water fleet, particularly the American light water fleet has been very resilient and 
has been able to withstand lots of challenges, but these advanced reactors are even, um, I think, you know, in a better position to withstand a lot of those threats. And then I think a final piece that sometimes, uh, as a story we forget to tell in the local industry, is the degree to which we take safety extraordinarily serious. You do not have a meeting in the nuclear industry without starting off with a safety talk. And it's kind of a cliche. Sometimes we laugh at ourselves about it. But the record of safety at nuclear power plants in the United States is really unmatched anywhere else in any other sort of sector, uh, the chemical sector, the electricity sector, all kinds of things where we deal with, with dangerous things. And it's a source of pride for the industry. We take safety very, very seriously. You know, Jeff, it's interesting. You can always tell when you go to the offices of an oil and gas company, right? Because when you're in their parking garage, they're all backed in. And so when you see all the cars backed in, because it's a safety issue, and so they're very key on safety. So you mentioned starting a meeting, there's always a safety talk. It's like you drive into a parking garage, all the cars are backed in. You say, it's an oil and gas company, that office is here. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to see you know, the resurgence of nuclear. Because as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm a big fan. And with the targets that we have set out for us, it just seems like a logical key component of combining with the other technologies to help accelerate the decarbonization. So I'm very excited to see the momentum behind it, because I do think that it's important that we continue to develop and advance that technology because it is clean, safe, and reliable. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? I think this was touched on earlier, but the degree to which we're seeing huge demand, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, for American technologies that can provide carbon-free, reliable power that can help those countries accelerate their trend to decarbonize is something that we've really seen a rapid growth in since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As everybody's looking to get off of fossil fuels, but everybody's looking to get off of Russian gas as quickly as possible. The demand for these American technologies is really, really high. And we feel that urgency to make sure that we're moving as quickly as possible to get viable commercial products to our allies overseas as well. It's not just about solving climate change, which is sort of how we were founded and the core of our mission, but we also want to make sure that we're providing access to sources of energy that don't put our allies in a, in a tough spot, in a tough position as well. So, you know, Maria mentioned that earlier, that really has been driving a lot of conversation around the need for American nuclear technology. I'll add maybe that the fuel supply chain is something that's often on my mind. And when we think about the scale of deployment that we will need for new nuclear technologies, it includes low-enriched uranium, including high-assay low-enriched uranium. But a lot of that currently comes from Russia. And if we're going to be serious about energy security, you know, the U.S. is going to need an additional few thousand metric tons a year of enriched material every year by 2050 if we're going to have the deployment we need. And so that means tens of millions more separative work units, so enrichment capacity among ourselves and our allies that we can trust. And, you know, I think we need to be very serious about ensuring the security of our nuclear fuel cycle. There's a lot of attention on it right now. I won't belabor the comment, but I will say in the DOE, this is something we're taking very seriously, and we'd like to make sure that we can support the advanced reactor industry as well as the existing reactor fleet with their uranium needs in the context of a less dependence on Russia in the long term. Um, one of the things that we, we covered in our latest analysis on nuclear was the need for more uranium supply. Um, so we think in our base case outlook that uranium supply uh, will need to double to meet the expected capacity growth around the world. To reach a two degree climate scenario, uranium supply has to, has to triple in order to meet the demand we expect. One of the, the, the issues though, is that countries have a challenge on their hands. Russia is a big supplier of uranium right now and a big supplier of refined uranium. So that presents a lot of risk into the uranium supply outlook 
uh, because Russia has used commodities and energy, you know, as a as a as a weapon, as everyone knows. So th- the question mark that we've been talking to clients about is at what point do you underwrite new supply? You know, there are new supply projects available in Canada and Australia, um, and at this point, you know, companies are trying to grapple with this question in terms of how does the supply mix change to meet. The demand growth that we expect uh, over the next 30 years or so. Yeah, I would just say in general, just less dependency on the whole nuclear picture from Russia is important. And as Katie said, I, I know we're focused on it now, but it's also what's driving some of those allies in Western Europe to really look to the United States for help. Some of them had commissioned reactors from Russia. Finland is a great example, right? They were already partially building a Russian reactor. And then based on what went on in Ukraine, they stopped. They still want a reactor, right? They still want the power. They just don't want it from Russia, right? And so here's a great opportunity for the U.S. companies to step in and say, we're here to help. And we have a a new great technology that can be built here. So energy security is really real in Europe right now. They feel it. It's not just a concept, right? It's something they live and breathe every day. I want to thank you guys all for coming on the show today. Really appreciate your time. It was interesting. I learned a lot. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everyone. I'm David Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for topics we should look at on future episodes. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Interchange Show. See you next time.